Luke 2, verse 8 to 12. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flock at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. We're now going to read from the Old Testament, from the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah is located right before the book of Jeremiah, if you brought your Bibles with you. And have, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to this chapter. And of course, you're always free to read the text as it is projected above me as well. We're going to focus especially on verse 6. And you will not have these opening verses projected for you. I just want you to listen to them, the opening verses of Isaiah 9, and then when we get to the text, you can read along with me. Isaiah 9, listen. Nevertheless, Isaiah says, there will be no more gloom. Ah, the uh, people in the AV booth are so quick. They pulled it up. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days day of Midian's defeat, recall the story of Gideon, if you're familiar with the Old Testament. You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Then here's our text, especially verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the advent of Christmas is really discernible for us in at least three ways. The first of which is shorter days. Christmas Day occurs in close proximity to what's called the winter solstice, the day of the year when we experience the fewest hours of sunlight in the whole year. So Christmas is a very dark time. Now, the people in Isaiah's day were living in darkness, and Isaiah says something about them in the previous chapter, chapter 8. He says, many only see distress 
and darkness and fearful gloom. Now, isn't that a fitting description of people today? Many see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. There's some very dark stuff occurring in the world today. I don't know if you follow world news, but there's a great tragedy that's unfolding at the border uh, between Belarus and Poland because the autocratic uh, president of Belarus has been saying to people in the Middle East, you have a pathway through, uh, through Belarus into Europe. But it was a false promise, and so you have all of these migrants, uh, you know, families, individuals, women, babies, encamped before a fence in the cold of winter along the Polish border. But there's some very dark stuff happening here in Hamilton as well. If you think of the crisis of the homeless and the tent encampments that you read about in the paper or perhaps see as you drive through the streets and the unpopular evictions and the protests. Seems many people see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And we haven't even said a word this morning about Omicron. The latest variant to COVID that was discovered recently in South America that apparently under a microscope is very different from previous variants. And it's very concerning, so concerning that the stock market on Friday took a dive. People just don't know what to make of this all. Many people see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, but there is hope. And Isaiah brings hope for his generation. It's hope for our generation as well. I love the way that chapter 9 begins. Nevertheless, there's going to be an end to this gloom, and there's going to be an end to this distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. One of the ways in which the advent of Christmas is perceptible to us is shorter days. Another way is decorative lights. We are living in a season of darkness right now as we approach the winter solstice, but everywhere we turn we see beautiful lights, colorful lights, adorning trees and houses and street poles, and it's all amazing to see. This is also symbolic, but what is the reason for hope? What is this light? Well, I am the reason for hope for you this morning. Did you know that? I didn't know that, uh, but this past week I received a piece of mail from a local charity, and you may have received it as well, but on the cover of the envelope it said in very big, bright letters, you are the reason for hope in our community today. And it made me feel really good and important for a little bit, but it's not true, is it? I'm not the reason for hope in our community today, and you're not the reason for hope in our community today. Well, what is the reason? Well, Isaiah gives us the reason. He says, for to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and on him, on his shoulders, the government will rest. Jesus is the light who shines in the darkness. And whenever you see the beautiful, bright, and colorful lights around you, think that Jesus is the ultimate light. So, 
The advent of Christmas is perceptible in at least three ways. Shorter days, colorful decorative lights, and then lastly, Christmas songs. Have you established your Christmas playlist this year? Well, I was up early this morning, and I had uh, my favorite Christmas music cranked which is pipe organ music and choral music. This is the reason why I'm not allowed to have a study in the house, because my family says, go away, go somewhere else. You know, my playlist is not the playlist that Spotify recommends for me. They don't understand me very well. They recommend Mariah Carey and pentatonics and this kind of stuff, but really, there's nothing more beautiful than Christmas carols played on a loud and bombastic pipe organ. Well, enough about that. Um, We're going to look at a Christmas playlist over the Advent season because in the Gospels in particular, we have four Christmas songs that we are taught. And as we explore those Christmas songs, we get to understand the message of Christmas afresh we get to understand the message of Christmas better. What are the four songs? Well, there's a song of Mary, and there's a song of Zechariah, and there's the song of Simeon, and there's the song of the angels on Christmas Day. We'll leave that last song for Christmas Day itself. Christmas playlist. But we're going to begin with a song from Isaiah. Now, technically, it's not a song. It's not considered a song in the Bible, but... George Friedrich Handel made it a song for us, didn't he? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful. I was going to sing it, but my family would disown me. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This morning we're going to see that Jesus, the child who is born, the son who is given, is the incarnation the one who makes flesh, makes human wisdom, power, love, and peace. Jesus is the incarnation of wisdom, power, love, and peace. That's what we see in the four identities that Isaiah unveils for us in this song. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, let's make our way through these identities. You might note right at the outset that at least two of these identities could never apply to us. Not one of us is mighty God. Not one of us is an everlasting father. But there are some wonderful counselors, and I'm married to one of them. What does Isaiah mean by wonderful counselor? Well, the word counselor is a word that Isaiah uses throughout his prophecy, and he often uses it to denigrate human wisdom. He says in chapter 19, verse 11, that the wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. Counsel, because wisdom is really hard to come by. And what is often presented as wisdom in the world is, in fact, stupidity. One of my favorite uh, Christmas memes that circulates on social media at this time of the year, I haven't seen it yet, I'm hoping it will appear in my feed, 
is an image of two elderly women who are conversing together, and uh, one of them says, the virgin birth I can believe, but three wise men? It's so hard to find just one wise man, right? It's an oxymoron, a wise man. And people often give stupid advice. I yesterday uh, took a couple through some premarital material in anticipation of their wedding in February, and I took some morsels of advice for married couples out of a couple of books that I read, and I presented them to this, to this couple, and I had them assess whether it, in fact, was wisdom. Here was one piece of advice for married couples, and you who are married, and those who are unmarried, for that matter, can assess this. Avoid conflict by doing what your spouse wants whenever possible. Is that wise? Avoid conflict by doing what your spouse wants whenever possible. That's disastrous advice, I think. That is stupid advice, and the Bible uses the word stupid of this kind of thing because, well, your spouse may want to do something that's harmful to your spouse or to you or to others, and it might be possible for you to do it, but you shouldn't do it. Here's another piece of advice I derive from a marriage book. Assess this. When you are irritated, count to ten before you say anything. When you are irritated, count to ten before you say anything. Is that true? Well, what if your spouse is smoking in front of a leaking propane tank? One 1,000, two 1,000, three 1,000, four 1,000, and now you can say something. No, I think there are scenarios where you can say something right away, and you don't need to count to ten. This counselor to be born will be wonderful, and that's an interesting word that uh, the Bible uses in different places. The Hebrew word is found, uh, interestingly, in connection with the birth account of Samson. Samson was a formidable warrior in Israel, a judge in Israel, and in the account of his birth, I think it's Judges 13, an angel of the Lord appears to his father Manoah and says to him, your wife, who's been childless for years, will conceive and bear a son. And then at some point, Manoah says to the angel, what is your name so that when your word comes true, I might honor you? And the angel says, wonderful. That's the angel's name, and Hebrew scholars will say that it means beyond understanding, extraordinary. Jesus is a wonderful counselor for at least four reasons. For one, he is sympathetic. Now, when you encounter difficulty in life, when you experience tragedy, you often want help, and you want feedback, and people often are encouraged by speaking to those who've experienced the same challenge or the same tragedy. If you've lost a child, it can be encouraging for you to speak to someone else who has lost a child. And Jesus, you see, has experienced it all, from stark poverty to infinite pain. He's experienced despair. He's experienced rejection. He's experienced defeat, mistreatment, 
opposition, even death itself. And Jesus is the Son of God, so he knows us from the inside out, not only as a human, but as the Son of God. He is sympathetic, so go to him. Jesus is a wonderful counselor, secondly, because he cares. Cast your cares upon him, 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. And he has proven that he cares for you. He's proven that he loves you because he's given up his life for you. He's given, this, given you the ultimate evidence of his love for you. And the wonderful thing about this counselor is that he doesn't have office hours. You can go to him at any time of the day. He's always available because Jesus is caring. Talk to him. And then thirdly, Jesus is trustworthy. As you go through this world, you hear a lot of people talking about this or that. And the question you need to ask is, what does Jesus say about this or that? So many voices pretend to have the truth. So many voices want to speak into your life. But the Apostle Paul says that in Jesus are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is trustworthy, so listen to him. And then lastly, Jesus is powerful. He can do what no other counselor can do. He can do something with the problem of sin. He can empower you with his spirit. He can give you the resources you need to fight against sin. He can give you his spirit to animate you. He can forgive you. No counselor can offer you forgiveness. When you are burdened with guilt, when your conscience is troubled, you can go to Jesus and he will forgive you. So, Jesus is powerful and go and receive from him. Jesus is the incarnation of wisdom because Jesus is um, sympathetic, go to him. Because Jesus is caring, speak to him. Because Jesus is trustworthy, listen to him. And because Jesus is powerful, receive from him. So he's the incarnation of wisdom, but secondly, he's also the incarnation of power. He is mighty God. Where is the center of power today? Well, it was the British Empire. Then it became the Soviet Union. Then it became the U.S. Who's going to be the next superpower? China, perhaps? I want us to think about how we all, in some sense, everyone here, I would imagine, has become powerful we can all control things now that previous generations could not control. Andy Crouch is an author. He was the editor of Christianity Today a while back, and he defines power as the ability to participate in the activity of stuff-making and sense-making. The ability to participate in the activity of stuff-making and sense-making. And with our phones, with our gadgets, we can participate in sense-making. We can receive all kinds of information about the world. We can process it, and we can report back to others. And with our phones, we can control all kinds of things. 
my wife and I did some renos at our house, and so we've got some brand new appliances. And did you know that with our phone, we can control the temperature in our house? With our phone, we can preheat our oven. With our phone, we can have our washing machine run another cycle. Imagine all of this, how incredible this is that we have so much power. But there is one thing, you know, that's uncontrollable in the world, and that's human behavior. We cannot control the behavior of people far from us. We cannot control the behavior of people close to us. And we cannot control our own behavior. What can help us control the uncontrollable demon of human behavior? Isaiah says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he is mighty God. And and the government rests upon his shoulders. And when I read through the gospel accounts, I find only one thing resting on the shoulders of Jesus, and it's the cross. The only thing said to rest on the shoulders of Jesus in the Gospels. The postmodern philosophers have told us that if we scratch any overarching worldview or any overarching story, it will bleed oppression. It will bleed power. The postmodern philosophers have said that under every fashionable glove, you find a violent fist. And that every story that's being told and every worldview that's being imparted is ultimately a grasp for power. So be careful when people say there's liberation for everyone because somewhere somebody is being enslaved. And I think for the most part, that is very true, and we can see how this is true. Just think of the message of sexual liberation. Sexual liberation for everyone. But it doesn't take you and me very long to think of people who are enslaved because of the message of sexual liberation. I talked about how our our gadgets give us power to control so many things. We can participate in the activity of sense-making. We all have this kind of power. But is that true? You might be horrified to discover that some people in the world who are making parts for your little gadgets to participate in sense-making are themselves slaves who do not have the freedom to participate in sense-making that you do. And so the exercise of your power only implies powerlessness for some others. Well, the Bible gives us an overarching worldview or story that can't be deconstructed in this way. Because the story of the Bible, as N.T. Wright says, a Bible scholar, is not a power play, but a love ploy. And at the heart of the story is the Son of God who suffers in weakness and then is put on a tree to demonstrate the costly love of the Creator for His people. It's not the grasping of power, 
It's the relinquishment of power in love for you and me. Jesus, you see, is not only the incarnation of wisdom, he's the incarnation of power. And isn't it interesting that Paul says the Greeks seek wisdom and the Jews seek power, signs. That's what power is. And yet God has an astonishing message for Jews and Greeks, one that seems foolish to the Greeks, one that seems weak to the Jews, the world is going to be rescued and restored, and sinners are going to be saved through the suffering and death of his Son. So Jesus is the incarnation of wisdom and power, but people are looking for more. What are people looking for today? Well, they're looking for love. And Isaiah has yet another identity for us. Jesus is wonderful counselor, mighty God, but also everlasting Father. And that phrase may trouble you as it troubled me for years. In what sense is Jesus everlasting Father? Isn't he the Son of God? Well, I don't think that Isaiah here is making a, a Trinitarian statement. He's saying something about the character of Jesus. Jesus has the character of the Father, which is the character of grace. Uh, you can think of what we read in the Gospels, uh, John 14. You know, Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus perfectly displays the character of the Father. What kind of father do you have? One who would die on the cross for your sins. That's the kind of father you have. A father who loves you with enduring, eternal love. Everlasting father. Now I believe that we were all created to be in fellowship with the Father. And I believe that this represents the deepest desire that each and every one of us have to be in fellowship with the Father, and that until and unless we are in fellowship with the Father, we will experience great discontentment. Everyone searching for the satisfaction of desire in the world is ultimately looking for a relationship with the Father. But what do you find in the world? Perhaps you find it in yourself people who want to keep their distance from the Father, people who run from the Father, much like the prodigal son, ran away from the Father rather than to the Father, wanted nothing to do with the Father, I'll live without him. It's the way that teenage boys relate to their fathers. You know, I made this interesting observation as a father of boys that when my boys were young, and we would walk through the mall together, they would hold my hand. At a certain point, they stopped, they stopped holding my hand. And now, when I walk through the mall with my adult sons, none of them are teenagers anymore, well, one of them, I guess, is. Um, now, when I walk through the mall, they, they walk beside me. But when they were teenagers, they would always walk behind me. Why? Because they were embarrassed about me. There was nothing I could wear that was right. There was nothing I could say that was right. So they always stayed a few steps behind me as if to say to the world, we're not with him. We're embarrassed by him. We'd rather stay away from him. I tend to think that's how people view God the Father, a little embarrassed by him. Stay away from him. Keep distance from him. And I wonder if it's because they've never felt loved 
by the Father. Isn't that it? But what the Bible teaches us is that when we lodge our faith and trust in Jesus, we are welcomed into the Father's home, adopted into the Father's family, embraced by the Father, affirmed by the Father, approved by the Father, delighted in by the Father. We ought always to have that image, right, of the father of the prodigal son running to embrace him, to kiss him, to love him. Did you have a bad father? Or do you have a bad father? Listen to what Isaiah is saying. Everything you dreamed a father could be, Jesus is and will be for you. Everything you dreamed a father could be, Jesus is and will be for you. In Jesus, you have a perfect father figure. He is not only the incarnation of wisdom and power, he's the incarnation of love. Not only wonderful counselor, mighty God, but everlasting father. Then lastly, Jesus is the incarnation of peace because the son who will be born will be the prince of peace, the incarnation of peace. Now, peace is what everybody in the world wants at Christmas time, the cessation of hostilities, and we find hostilities all over the world, don't we? But Isaiah is going to point out later on in his prophecy that Jesus is the one to bring peace, and he indicates how that's going to happen. He says in Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. One of my favorite episodes in the Gospels occurs in the, in the Gospel of John, where Jesus, as the risen Savior, meets up with his disciples for the first time. The disciples are anxious, the disciples are worrying, the disciples are fearful because of the Jewish leaders who want to put them to death, and the disciples feel guilty because they did not support Jesus when he was on the cross. They, they ran away, they forsook him and fled, the gospel writer Mark says. And Jesus walks through the door and he says, Shalom, peace the conventional Jewish greeting. But he's indicated them to them before that the peace he gives is not like the peace that the world gives. My peace I give you, he says. And it's peace of mind for the disciples because he's gone to the cross because he loves them that much. And he wants to see them happy and thrive it's peace of conscience. He knows that they feel guilty about deserting him. And he's there to say, you know, he showed his hands and his side, I've died as a sacrifice for your sins. And I've paid the penalty. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in me. My peace I give you. Well, here's a song for your Christmas playlist, the song of Isaiah. 
There's a reason for hope in our community, and it's not me, and it's not you, but it's in the child who is born, it's in the son who is given. And why is he the reason for hope? Because he is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He is the incarnation of wisdom, the incarnation of power, the incarnation of love, and the incarnation of peace. Go to him, entrust yourself to him, surrender your life to him, and promote his identity in this world. It's the best way to celebrate Christmas this year. Let's pray together. Our loving God, we thank you this morning for giving us your son. And at Christmas time, we see the baby Jesus in the nativity scenes, and it's important for us to remember that he was a human baby Help us to remember this morning that the human baby is also mighty God. And that what is impossible with humanity is possible with you and is possible through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. We pray that over this Advent season we might come to understand his identity even better not simply to accumulate facts in our minds, but to soften our callous hearts and to enable us to turn to him, to rest on him, and rely upon him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.